Now, we come in Psalm 78. It's a historical psalm, and you see here the failure of the people, but the faithfulness of God. It's a wonderful psalm, and he calls upon God to hear and answer him. Give ear, O my people, to my law. First, of course, it's the call of God here to his people. And he asks them to give ear and to hear him. And he mentions in verse 9, the children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows turned back in the day of battle and kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in the law. Now, that is a direct reference in Second Kings, the 17th chapter, when you'll recall Ephraim did not go to the battle, and God took note of it. That's a very interesting thing and a very remarkable thing. Now, you see, as you go through this section, beginning at verse 17, you see the failure of God's people. It was Israel then. It's the church today, but God's faithfulness in all of it. Notice verse 17, "...and they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking food according to their desire. Yea, they spoke against God. They said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness?" That, again, is practical atheism today on the part even of God's people. And what did he do? Verse 25, man did eat angels' food. He sent them food to the field. He gave them all that they needed, my friend. And yet they are doubting God and criticizing God. This is a very wonderful psalm, by the way, this psalm here. And it's a very lengthy psalm. But that's as far as we are going to get in it. Except at the end, we have this. It's a psalm that covers their history. It's a historical psalm all the way, actually, from Egypt to David. And then verse 70, "...he chose David his servant, took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes, great with young. He brought him to feed Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hand." That is, God did that. God was faithful to them. He's faithful to us today, friends. We leave right off there, but begin next time with Psalm 79. Now, we have here in Psalm 79 a prayer. And this is not a prayer for you and me to make, I grant you that. But it is a particular prayer for God's people, the nation Israel, and in the day of trouble that is coming to them. Now, we've had several prayers like this. It's a psalm of Asaph. We've been seeing his psalms now at great length. He was a great musician. Probably the writer of these, or the arranger of them, was, to all intents and purposes, an assistant to David. And how much David contributed to these psalms I don't know, but I'm of the feeling that he did. He was contemporary with David. Now, will you notice this? It says, O God, the nations are come into thine inheritance. Thy holy temple have they defiled. They've laid Jerusalem on heaps. The city that the false prophets had said could never be taken. The temple, they said, that could never be destroyed. 
was destroyed, and the city was taken, and the people were carried into captivity. And not only did that happen once, and not only did it happen twice, it happened many times. And this is something that caused these people to cry out to God. And again, you see the temple, the sanctuary is the very center of this. For this corresponds, this section, to the book of Leviticus, and that's the book of worship around the tabernacle and later in the temple. And it's a cry to God, of course, for judgment to come. It says, "...the dead bodies of thy servants have they given to be food under the fowls of the heavens, the flesh of thy saints under the beasts of the earth." And this was a problem that confronted these people. Why has God permitted it? The false prophets had told them it wouldn't happen. Now, Jeremiah had told them later on. He told them it would happen, and it was going to happen. And they are crying out here. Of course, this is before Jeremiah's day, but it's still a question. I understand that a great many Jews have become atheists because of what happened to their people in the nation of Germany during Hitler's dictatorship. Well, it's difficult. Of course, for them to understand it, they'd have the same question the psalmist has here. But had they been faithful to God? Were they back in a proper relationship to Him? Had they accepted their Messiah? Were they turning to Him? And the answer, of course, is no. And God has judged His people and is judging them today. I think great judgment has come upon the church in His coming. I think great judgment has come upon the nations, that is, nations like our own. Already there is a judgment. And so there is this cry, verse 5, "'How long, Lord, wilt thou be angry forever? Shall thy jealousy burn like fire?' Aren't you going to let up on us? May I say to you, that was a cry that went out. And then there is this cry for a forgiveness." Listen to this, verse 8. Oh, remember not against us former iniquities. Let thy tender mercies speedily meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, we're in grave danger. Now, don't remember our former iniquities. Now, you remember God answered them on that. He said, your iniquities I'll remember no more. But how will he be able to rub them out and forget them? Only through the death of Christ. Now, when that is rejected, whether it be Jew or Gentile, whether it be rich or poor, bond or free, male or female, black or white, or red or yellow, it doesn't make any difference who you are. When you reject Jesus Christ, then there's judgment. You have to meet him in judgment or redemption. There are no other ways of meeting him except that. And that is the cry of these people. And listen to it. There's a plaintive note here. Verse 9, "...help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of thy name, and deliver us, and purge away our sins for thy name's sake. Why should the nations say, Where is their God?" They'd been making that boast. God was among them and would deliver them. False prophets had said that. Now God has not delivered them. And they're a subject of ridicule. 
Now, I come to the 80th Psalm that follows this, and it's another prophetic psalm. And you have here a continuation of thought in all of these psalms through this section here. A prophetic development, by the way, and the Septuagint has in it the inscription, the Assyrian. And because of that, why, there have been those that have attempted to place this psalm at another time. But we're told very definite here, it's a psalm of Asaph. And it's a chief musician upon Shoshanim Idu. And we've had that before us before, and that means lilies. And I think that is very important for us to see. It's a lily psalm. So it's going to mention the Messiah. It's going to mention the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 80, verse 1 begins like this. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Now, this is a beautiful thing here. And the shepherd of Israel, he is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have that mention of the sheep and the shepherd before. Remember, in connection with Joseph, when old Jacob was giving his dying blessing to his twelve sons, he gave the most important blessing, I guess, at that time to Joseph. And it says, he led Joseph like a flock. And that refers to the wilderness when the tribes advanced toward the land, they promised to take possession. And it was under the leadership of Jehovah, the shepherd of Israel. But who was the leader? Well, it was Joshua at that time, and he was an Ephraimite, you see. And he was the one chosen to lead them into the land. He acted under the captain of the hosts of the Lord. Now, this is a very wonderful psalm. Let me read. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou who leadest Joseph like a flock, thou who dwellest between the cherubim, shine forth. And this is an appeal to God who had met with these people in the Holy of Holies. Now he says, "...before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy strength and come and save us." Now, why would Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh be mentioned? Well, I think that the reason for it, you'd have to go back to Numbers, the second chapter, verses 17 through 24. And I'll not go back there, but if you go back and read it, you'll find out that in placing the tribes around the tabernacle, that these tribes here, Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, they were put immediately behind the ark in the march, in the order of the march. These three tribes were together on one side, and then they immediately followed behind the ark. The ark led them through the wilderness. Now, just as God had led these three tribes who led out, now the call again comes, stir up your strength, lead us again, O God, lead us again. And notice what he says here, restore us, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Now, that is quoted here three times in this psalm. 
It's a sort of a chorus. Restore us, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Now, will you notice here, there is this little bit of an elegy that's put in here. It's the sad part of the psalm. Just three verses, but listen to it. O Lord God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? And he's angry against it because of the fact he's not answering them. Verse 5, Thou feedest them with the bread of tears, and givest them tears to drink in good measure. Now, that is one of the most remarkable verses that you have in the Word of God. He says that he gave to these people tears to drink, tears for their bread. That's all they had to eat were tears. And these are tears of suffering. No nation has suffered as these people have and survived. Most other nations that have been treated as they've been treated on several occasions would have been exterminated, and disappeared from the face of the earth. Now, this nation here has been drinking tears down through the centuries. Why? Well, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, because the shepherd of Israel has heard them. Not only has he heard them, he has been rejected. And we read in Luke 19, And when he was come there, he beheld the city, and he wept over it. The Lord Jesus, you will recall, came to Jerusalem the last time. Now, he didn't weep for himself at that time. Remember when the daughters of Jerusalem were weeping, he said, Weep not for me, you weep for yourself. You are the one that you should weep for, because he said, don't weep for me. Now, will you notice, I'll read now Luke 19, beginning with verse 42, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they're hid from thine eyes, for the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, compass thee around, keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, thy children with thee. They shall not leave thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. That is a tremendous passage of Scripture, and that's the reason they've had that to drink. Now again, here is this cry, verse 7 of Psalm 80. Restore us, O God of hosts, cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Now again, what is the face to shine? Well, that face to shine is none other than the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he says here, and this is another remarkable verse, verse 8, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the nations and planted it. God brought them and put them in the land. Now, their temple is to be destroyed. They're going out of the land. Why? For the same reason these nations were put out. Why? Because they turned their back upon God, and the responsibility of Israel was greater because they had privileges that no other nation had had. They had the visible presence of God. Now, he says here, Thou preparest room before it, Thou didst cause it to take deep root and fill the land. 
That's the vine. God says, I'm putting it out of the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it. The boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. And now the question arises, Why hast thou then broken down the hedges, so that all they who pass by the way do pluck her? God for years put a hedge around that land. And it's quite interesting. Those people were in that land for, I suppose, a good 500 years. And they were never touched. God never permitted any of the great nations of that day to destroy them. Egypt came against them, got victories, but never destroyed them. The same was true of Assyria, the Hittite nation. But there came a day when God put down the hedge and let them come in. Why? They rejected the shepherd of Israel. What a beautiful picture this is of him. Now he says here in verse 17, "...let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand." And that's the place of power. And who's at God's right hand? It is their Messiah. "...sit thou on my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool." That's a remarkable picture that we have here. You remember that when Rachel was dying along the roadside that leads into Bethlehem, she wasn't even able to make it to a stable back of an inn. And you remember, Benjamin was born, but she didn't call him that. When she looked upon that little fella that she'd just given birth to and she's dying, she says, call him Benoni's, the son of my suffering. And old Jacob looked at him, and I think he had the eyes of his lovely Rachel, and he said, we're going to call him Benjamin. He's the what? The son of my right hand. That's the Lord Jesus. He's the son of suffering. He came the first time. But he's today on God's right hand. Sit thou on my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. And he's coming someday from there to this earth. Now will you notice, verse 18, So will not we go back from thee, revive us. We'll call upon thy name. And then here's the chorus for the third time. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, Cause thy face to shine upon us. This is a wonderful, wonderful psalm. Now, we come here to Psalm 81, and like so many of these other psalms, it's linked to the one that precedes it. In other words, we have a continuous story that's going on here. And we saw the prayer in the last one. And it's a prayer that we've indicated through here that it's not a prayer for Christians to pray, not necessary for Christians to pray. It'll be for the time of Jacob's trouble in the end of the age. And the prayer today is, even so come, Lord Jesus. That's the great prayer. And in the meantime, help us get out your word, Lord. Now, this one is a song of deliverance, by the way, that we have here in this 81st Psalm. And it begins on a high note. It's a soprano solo. Sing aloud unto God our strength. Make a joyful noise unto the God of Jacob. Take up a psalm and bring hither the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the lute. Blow the trumpet in the new moon at the set time on our feast day. For this is Israel's stature and ordinance of the God of Jacob. Now, you see, I think the key here is the blowing of the trumpet at the new moon. 
And this is all very proper, because the new moon appears here before the Son of Righteousness arises with healing in his wings, and he's coming to deliver them. I think this looks really to the Feast of Tabernacles that we have here. And it's a beautiful thing. Actually, there were really four feasts that came at the beginning of the year. There was the Passover, and there was the Feast of Pentecost, and then there was the Feast of First Fruits, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. All of these took place. And I think here you have that Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Trumpets. It was a great day. And it still looks to the future, you see. So that's what you have here in Psalm 81 when it begins like that. Now, verse 4, "...for this was a statute for Israel and a law of the God of Jacob." Now, you see, this refers specifically to these people. So let's leave it that way. Verse 8, "...hear, O my people, and I will testify unto thee, O Israel, if thou wilt hearken unto thee." And then, verse 10, "...I am the Lord thy God, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt." Open thy mouth wide, and I'll fill it. Now, that's a promise to them. And let's leave it that way. Now, there's a great spiritual lesson, I think, for us today. He never led me out of Egypt, but he saved me out of sin. And that was Egypt of this world. Now, he says, open wide your mouth, McGee, and I'll fill it with spiritual blessings. And he's done that. God's been good, friends, and quite wonderful. Now he says, though, in verse 11, "...but my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would have none of me." Have none of God today, by the way. That nation over there hasn't turned to God. They're as far from God as we are. And there's actually not much difference from the Arab side and the Israel side. And there's not much difference between that land and the United States today. Only I think we're in worse spiritual condition than any of them are yet we're trying to tell the world how they ought to do things. I think that we need to be in sackcloth and ashes today as a nation because of our own failure. We need, as a people, by the way, individuals to turn to God. Now, friends, we come here to the 82nd Psalm. And this is a psalm that, very candidly, has been very much misunderstood, the critic will turn to this psalm and more or less ridicule it. Those who deny the deity of Christ use this psalm. So it is important. And this is a psalm that is prophetic. It looks to the future for God's earthly people, for the nation Israel. And we see in connection with that the glory of the Lord. And it's wonderful when these are brought together. And we have here a prophetic description of the judgment which God will execute in the day when he saves the remnant. Now, he begins on that note, "...God standeth in the congregation of the mighty." Well, that hasn't happened yet, and it will in the millennium. This looks to the future. And it says, "...he judgeth among the gods." Now, who is he calling gods here? It'll be important in a few moments. Verse 2, "...how long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked?" 
Selah. Now, here is a verse of Scripture that is very important to understand. Who is he calling gods? He's calling the judges gods. And why does he call them that? Because today they stand in his place and actually in God's shoes, if I may use that expression. And he goes on to say to them this, Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the land of the wicked. Now, here is something that is very important. When the Lord Jesus comes as the judge to this earth, he's going to defend the poor and the fatherless, the afflicted and the needy. These are the ones. Now, one of the big arguments today against capital punishment is that the rich always get off. The poor are the ones that pay the penalty. Therefore, we ought to get rid, according to that, of course, you ought to get rid of all law, because the rich get off and the poor have to pay the penalty. And God is saying here to the judges, I want you to defend the poor and the fathers. This idea today that is abroad of giving the poor an opportunity is not new at all. Just as old here is the book of Psalms. And God is saying he intends to do that someday. The Lord Jesus, the Messiah, when he is reigning on this earth, will defend the poor and the fatherless, the afflicted and the needy. And today, judges are to do that because they're in God's place and they occupy God's place. Now he says, deliver the poor and needy, rid them out of the hand of the wicked. And now we come to something that's interesting. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in the darkness. All in the foundations of the earth are out of course. And certainly today, the world is being shaken and is in great turmoil. And one of the great problems has been the judges of the earth and the judges of our land today. It's so very easy for a judge to be like Pilate, wash his hands, and say, well, I don't believe in that uncivilized method of punishing people by capital punishment. He can escape, you see that. Well, when anyone comes before him, he ought to remember justice is blind. And if it's a rich man that's committed a crime that deserves capital punishment, it should be executed. But unfortunately... Very few of them have had to pay for their crimes. Now, will you notice, he says in verse 6, I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Now, what does he mean when he says, ye are gods? Now, the Lord Jesus himself, you'll recall, quoted that when they came to him and actually questioned his deity Why he answered them with this scripture here. They accused him, you remember, of blasphemy, because actually he made himself God. He says, I and my Father are one. And they accused him of blasphemy. And the Lord Jesus said, why, it's written in your law, you're gods. And he is saying to them that they are sitting in the place of judgment 
And when you sit in the place of judgment, you are taking the place of God. So many of the saints today are guilty of that type of thing. They sit in judgment on other saints. Well, Paul, you remember, said, I'm not judged any man. I'm going to stand before him someday, and because of that, I don't even judge myself. When you stand in the place of judgment, why, you're acting for God. And you're God's when you're judging. You've taken that position. And I'm fearful of our nation today with so many godless men that are seeking office. Because, to begin with, they know nothing of the background of this country. They are not in spiritual tune with the founding of this nation that was founded on the Word of God. And I remember years ago, and I was greatly impressed by that judge in New York City. Was it the Rosenthal's that were brought before him, and they were guilty of being spies? And this judge was a Jew. And he said that the night before, the next day that he handed in judgment, he spent that whole night in prayer. I was impressed by that, my friend. Why? Well, because he was going to have to hand down a harsh judgment. He was going to have to stand actually in the place of God and take the life of a man. And a man that has that position ought to be a godly man. He ought to be a man of prayer. I was impressed a great deal by that. I feel like today that the big problem is with the judges. Actually, not the criminal out in front. It's with the judges. And the breakdown of law and order, it's a strange place, has begun among the law profession and not really with the criminal element at all. Now, any time that you pass judgment on a person... You stand in the position of God. You know, parents ought to recognize that. What does God say to a little fella that's growing up in a home? Why, he says, little fella, I want you to listen to your mama and your papa. I want you to follow what they have to say. But wait a minute. Suppose papa and mama don't tell them the right thing and don't bring them up as they should. And they're a lot like that today. God says, I'm going to hold them responsible because they're in my place. They occupy that position because I have said to that little boy, my son, hear the instruction of thy father, forsake not the law of thy mother. And God help the father or the mother today that's not leading a child in a godly pathway. Someone said, what is worse than going to hell? And the answer that was given by a great preacher of the South years ago was to go to hell, to hear the voice of a boy. And the father recognizes it and says, My son, what are you doing here? And the boy says, Dad, I followed you. May I say to you, friends, this is a tremendous verse. God says to the judges, You be sure you judge accurately. Be sure it's just. You're God." And all of you are children of the Most High. That's what he's talking about here. Now he says, but ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Now you may stand in the place of God, but you're a human being, and one day you're coming down. And you're going to have to stand before God. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. And that was a prayer, and will be a prayer of the nation Israel. 
I'm not sure what I could join in that prayer today. Oh, God, judge this earth. Oh, God, you're going to inherit all the nations. This is yours. And judge the earth. That is a prayer I think that any can pray today. Now, may I move on to the 83rd Psalm. And this is a song of Asaph that we have here. And this is the last of the Asaph Psalms, and it concludes this series here of these Psalms that he has written. Now, this Psalm is a rather puzzling Psalm. The fact of the matter is, you cannot fit this into the history of the nation Israel. And certainly, since you cannot, why the idea is to guess at it. And there have been some wild guesses, by the way. Let me read here. Keep not thou silence, O God. Hold not thy peace, and be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies make a tumult, and they that hate thee have lifted up the head. Whoever the enemy is here, he hates God, and that would be true of any enemy. But they are marked here. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against thy hidden ones. In other words, these are some that have plotted the destruction of the nation Israel. Now, there have been those that have attempted to fit this in to the time of Jehoshaphat, and there have been others that have attempted to fit it in at other times. The important thing for us to note is that God expresses their hatred here of God. And I believe that that would be true of any enemy. Now, it says here, and they're identified now, and we begin this section here that it's difficult to fit it into history. For they've consulted together with one consent, their confederate against thee, the tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites, now that would be the Arabs, of Moab and the Hagarenes, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria also is joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. And the children of Lot would be, of course, Moab and Edom. Now you have here these enemies. And there's no place in history where you can fit this in. And that makes this, to me, a very remarkable section and has a real meaning because it would seem to indicate that it's looking forward to the future. And apparently, these nations that were in existence at one time will probably appear again. Now, Israel in the present state is surrounded by Arab nations, and actually not all of them are Arab, that are apparently joined together, not so much as Arabs, but as those that are Muslims. They're opposed to the nation Israel. But apparently in the last days, why, these nations will come back into existence. And they're not there today. And there's nothing to correspond. So I personally think that this is a very interesting passage of Scripture. And I wish I had time to deal with it farther. Now from verses 9, actually through the rest of this psalm, you have that which is an imprecatory psalm. It's asking God's judgment. And it is a 
retrospect of the past in this sense. He is saying, judge as you've done it in the past. It says, verse 9, do unto them as unto the Midianites, as to Sisera, as to Jabin, at the brook Kishon. Now, you go back and read the story in the book of Judges of how these nations were judged at that particular time. And there are those that say, oh, God will never do that in the future. He won't. He's done it in the past. And God hasn't changed, friends. If he's done it in the past, he'll do it in the future. And I think that is the reason this is impressive. He says, just as you judged them in the past, do it in the future. And this is an imprecatory psalm. I don't think we should pray this kind of a psalm today by any means. We should, we're told to pray for enemies. Well, what should we pray? That they keep on being our enemies? No, that we pray they be converted, that they turn to God. But here, this is a call for judgment. And then he indicates here the method. Oh, my God, make them like a wheel, like the stubble before the wind. You remember that great big wheel that the oxen pulled around? It would beat out the grain, and it really crush the stubble. And now he's saying here, deal with them like that. And then verse 14, as the fire burneth a forest, and as the flame setteth the mountains on fire. But be like a forest fire to them. This is a call for judgment, you see. And then it concludes on this note, that men may know that thou, whose name alone is the Lord, art the most high over all the earth. And that name, the Lord, is Jehovah, that the world might know. And I'm convinced that the only way that this world is going to know that God is God is for him to move in judgment. The goodness of God ought to lead men to repentance, but it doesn't. It should, and if man were at all sensitive to the presence and person of God, it would lead them, but it drives them actually farther away from God. And an affluent nation, when we were a frontier nation, pioneering and fighting our way across the West, we were dependent upon God. But today we don't need him. We have atom bombs. But it looks to me like right now we do need him. Now we come to the 84th Psalm, and here again the Leviticus character, this section, comes out. And this is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah served actually in the temple, first in the tabernacle. I have a reference here of that, and I'm sure that when all of us passed over it, we paid very little attention to it. I know that when... I had it here on the Through the Bible program. I merely referred to this chapter. That's First Chronicles, the 26th chapter. But now go back and look at it in the light of this psalm. Concerning the divisions of the porters of the Korahites was of Mishelemi, Ah, the son of Kore, the son of Asaph, and so on. Then it has this long list of that family of the Korahites. Now, Korah led the rebellion, you remember, one of them that led the rebellion against Moses. And he was judged. But now, by the grace of God, they're Levites, they're serving in the tabernacle and here in the temple of God. 
Now we read in verse 12, "...among these were the divisions of the porters, even among the chief men, having Judas like one another to minister in the house of the Lord." It says they cast lot, that for every man a gate. Now that means these men, strong, robust Levites, they guarded the temple. They guarded the tabernacle and then the temple at every gate. They were there to watch over it. This is a remarkable psalm. And in view of that, why we have here the temple and tabernacle called to our attention. Listen to the way it begins. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. How wonderful that this is. Listen to him now. My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Is that your heart cry today? Do you love to meet with God's people? And I recognize today that in some churches you don't get much fellowship, and you get more gossip and criticism than you can get anything else. But my friend, that's the place for fellowship. And there's some wonderful churches about over this land. I hope there's one in your neighborhood where the Word of God is preached and Christ is exalted. And if it is, you ought to go there and see if there isn't a fellowship of believers there. Because that's where you and I are going to grow. That's where we're going to be blessed. Now, I think this is lovely. These Korahites, they saw, as they were serving in the tabernacle and temple later on, they saw this, "'Yea, the sparrow hath found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself.'" I think they probably built nests around the temple of Solomon later on, "'Where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God.'" And this man who wrote this psalm, as he looked up and saw that, he said, I want to dwell like that. I want to be that close to God. And he comes to verse 9. Behold, O God, our shield. Remember the Lord Jesus called attention to that. Why, he says, you take that little sparrow. Why, they're not worth anything. Like you'd like to get rid of them. The way they chatter around and they mess up everything. Dirty little old bird. And the Lord Jesus said, not one of those sparrows fall, but what my Father sees it. And actually, the language is stronger than that. He says, that sparrow falls in the lap of my Father. Knows all about it. And so the psalmist now can say, Behold, O God, our shield. You're our shield. And look upon the face of thine anointed. Now, remember, we have seen that that means the Messiah. Look upon the face of the Messiah. You see, he revealed the face of God down here. Now listen to verse 10. The sanctuary, as in the book of Leviticus, is the very center of the life of that nation. There was a day when the church was the center of social life in this country. It's not even the center of religious life today, but ought to be. Verse 10, "...for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand, thousand days anywhere else." I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And that's what this Korahite, that's what he was, a doorkeeper. He said, I'd rather have my job than to be a rich man way off yonder somewhere. There are some people that look at their watch on Sunday morning 
to see if the preacher's going overtime. The psalmist here says, I'd rather spend one day in God's house than a thousand anywhere else. What a rebuke of many of us in these days. But what a glorious psalm. We come to the 85th psalm, and this is a psalm that certain critics have attempted to identify it with the return under Ezra and Nehemiah. And actually, it has no reference to that whatsoever. And the reason that the critic has done that is because he has not recognized that the Psalms are prophetic. And this is a Psalm of the sons of Korah. And we are in this section here where we have several writers of the Psalms. And the amazing thing is that they tell a story. These Psalms have been put together. Now, I'm not going to insist on the inspiration of the arrangement of the Psalms. But believe me, it looks to me like God had an oversight of it because they're systematized in a way that tell a story. And we have found one cluster here, another cluster there, and a bunch of them here. And as a result, why they tell out a prophetic story or present a prophetic picture. And that's what we're having in this section here. And this psalm looks to the future. That is my reason today. And there are a great many people think that I'm rather narrow in this connection. Some call me narrow and others call me square. And how can you be narrow and square at the same time? I don't know. Because if I squared, you'd have to be a little wide. But regardless of that, I have no confidence in any translation made by liberals. I feel like a certain minister here in Southern California put it. He says, we might as well trust a lunatic for a lawyer, a quack for a physician, a wolf for a sheepdog, an alligator for a babysitter, a rapist as a Girl Scout leader, or a communist for our president. No modernist can be trusted with the translation of the Word of God or the proclamation of the Word of God. And that's the end of his quotation. And you know, I say amen to that. My feeling is that we need a translation by men who believe they were translating the very Word of God itself. And therefore, I can accept some of these modern translations. Now, what we have here in this psalm, therefore, is a picture of the future. Now, will you listen to it? Psalm 85, verse 1. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Now, you see, because of that statement, why they assume that it means the return from the Babylonian captivity. But actually, a very small remnant returned at that time, less than 60,000, and the bulk of the people did not return. And this has no reference at all to that. This is looking forward to the kingdom when God brings them back into the land. Now listen to it. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. What a glorious, wonderful picture this is. And it can have only reference to the future. It certainly didn't depict the condition in that day. If you 
think that it does, read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. Why, Malachi goes after these people because of the fact their hearts were far from God. Oh, they were attending the temple and bringing sacrifices, but their hearts were far from God. This is a different picture here altogether. Now, will you notice, Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. The judgments are over. They are in the background. And that for the child of God today is true as far as our sins are concerned. I'm not worried about the sin question. That's been settled. The old account was settled long ago. When Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that settled it. I'll tell you something that does trouble me a little. In fact, troubles me a whole lot is the fact I'm to go before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema, and every man will give an account there of his works. And I'm not sure about some of those. No wonder Paul says, I don't even judge myself. I've got to wait till I come before him. Oh, I hope he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But we'll have to wait and see about that. But salvation, friends, that's all in the past. Now, here all the judgment is over for these people. You see that the worst time for this nation and for the world is in the future. The Great Tribulation is global in its extent. And it is a time, actually, of judgment. It's a time when Satan is turned loose. The Holy Spirit is removed from restraining evil. He'll be here, but he'll not be restraining evil. The lid will be taken off. And the fellow that wanted to paint the town red is going to have a big enough brush and plenty of paint in that day to do it. And God's going to let them go the limit. There's brought together in a focal point everything in the way of judgment and evil. And that's the reason I don't want to be here. And I don't think that I will. And to say the church goes through that period is, I think, entirely to miss what the great tribulation really is. Now, will you listen to verse 4? Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? No, the day is coming when these people that have suffered, as we saw in another psalm, they had tears to drink and they had tear sandwiches to eat. That was their diet. They were not on a Weight Watcher diet either. They were on a diet of tears. But that's over now. And the time's come. you wipe away all tears. Now he says in verse 6, "'Wilt thou not revive us again?' that thy people may rejoice in thee. And today we need revival for several reasons in the church. One is there's a lack of joy in the lives of believers. It should be there, but it's not. Verse 7, Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. How wonderful. This is something all of us, our hearts, can enter into And listen to this, I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he'll speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly, and they'll not again, because this will be the final time, and they'll not be again turning 
the sin, sins to be removed from his universe. Now, verse 9, Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, and glory may dwell in our land. Oh, what a picture. And glory is not in that land today. I think it's a wonderful land. I enjoy visiting over there. But I see nothing in the way of glory in that land today. Just a bunch of rock and a great many sacred places to us that are Christians. Now, verse 10. Listen to this. This is one of the most remarkable verses in the Scripture. It says, Mercy and truth are met together. <laughs> they have even met each other today, let alone meet together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now, they're not on speaking terms today. And one of the reasons we can't have peace in the world is because we do not have righteousness in the world. Things have to be right, friends, before you can have peace in this world. And things are not right today. Things are not right anywhere. Things are not even right in my neighborhood. And maybe things are not right in our lives today. And until things are right, there'll be no peace on the earth. This is a great verse. Now, verse 13, "...righteousness shall go before him, and shall set up in the way of his steps." When the Lord Jesus reigns, he'll reign in righteousness. Now, in Psalm 86 that we come to here, we have a prayer of David, back to a Davidic psalm. And it's a prayer of David. It's a rather remarkable prayer, because if you go through it, you will notice how many times the word, O Lord, occurs. And bow down thine ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Then verse 3, Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. Now, I've referred to the two names that occur in the book of Psalms that we've had. Elohim, which speaks of God as Creator, and Jehovah, which speaks of God as Savior, the one who's holy and yet the one who is a Savior. Now, we've got another word for God here, and the translation is made accurately, O Lord. And it's Adonai, Adonai. And that, I think, is important because of the fact that the pious Jews in that day did not pronounce the name Jehovah. That was a sacred, that was that sacred tetragram. They just didn't use that. And in course of time, they actually did not know how to pronounce it. And today, you find that the scholars debate whether it should be Jehovah or Yahweh, and there are one or two other pronunciations. But there's no question about this. This is Adonai, and they substituted this word instead of Jehovah. And I would say that it refers to God as our Savior, the one who is the holy God, who has been able to extend mercy unto us. And this is a very remarkable psalm, and there are those that have attempted to call this psalm a messianic psalm. I do not think that this could be called a messianic psalm in the strict sense of the word, because verse 11 is the example that I'd like to call your attention to. It says, "'Teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name.'" 
Well, I don't think that you could apply that to the Lord Jesus in any way at all. For the very simple way that it could apply to you or to me, but he came here to do the Father's will. He was always in the Father's will. He'd never need to pray a prayer like this, unite my heart to fear thy name. It just wouldn't apply to him at all. Someone has put it like this, and I'd like to give you this extended quotation regarding this expression, unite my heart to fear thy name. This is indeed what is everywhere the great lack among the people of God. How much of our lives is not spent in positive evil, but frittered away and lost in countless petty diversions which spoil effectually the positiveness of our testimony for God. How few can say with the apostle, This one thing I do, we are on the road, not at least intentionally off it, but we stop to chase butterflies among the flowers and make no serious progress. How Satan must wonder when he sees us turn away from the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them when realized as his temptation and yet yield ourselves with scarce a thought to endless trifles lighter than the thistle-down, for which the child spends all his strength, and we laugh at him. If we examined our lives carefully in such an interest as this, how we would realize the multitude of needless anxieties, of self-imagined duties, of permitted relaxations, of innocent trifles which incessantly divert us from that in which alone is profit. How few, perhaps, would care to face such an examination day by day of the unwritten history of their lives. And Grant wrote that. That is remarkable. I find a great many Christian workers today, they're not in open sin, but they sure are lazy. And they kill time doing this and that, and they are busy here and there, and the main business remains undone. They are not watching the stuff. They're not guarding the stuff. They are not alert today in serving the Lord. This, I think, is a remarkable statement. Now, the statement ahead of it was, Teach me thy way, O Jehovah. Now, that's, I think, the answer to it. You remember the first thing that Paul said when he was converted, was, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord had already answered his prayer. And that prayer was back in the psalm, Teach me thy way, Jehovah. How we need that. And he's promised. He says, I'll teach thee in the way in which thou shalt go. And then we can say, I'll walk in the truth. And that means we should walk in the light and the knowledge of the Word of God. This is a marvelous psalm. Now, we move down to Psalm 87. And Psalm 87 is one of these Korah psalms. It is a psalm, I think, not for the sons of Korah, but of the sons of Korah. And it's a song, and it has to do with Zion, the city of God. 
And I hear people say today, I'm marching to Zion, the beautiful city of God. I don't know where they're going, but they are apparently going. And the city that we're referring to here happens to be over yonder in that land. And when we were going up, some of us in a car, and the others couldn't sing any better than I could, so it didn't sound very good, but we sang, we're marching to Zion. Only thing was, we were riding, but we were on the way actually to Zion. And that is where it is, by the way, over there. Now, notice what he says here. His foundation is in the holy mountains. And we are finding that's where it is, by the way, over there. That's where the government of the world will be. That is what the Word of God says. For instance, in Zechariah 2, 10 and 11, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord, and many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. Now, again, we're still in this section that's known as the Leviticus section, and the tabernacle and temple are the very heart of it. Listen to verse 2. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. What a picture it is. He says, I'll make mention of Rahab and Babylon. I think that's a very interesting expression because Rahab means pride and Babel means confusion. And all the pride and confusion of the world is coming to know. O God of hosts, forget us not. Remember us even in these days. And all of that will be remembered, but just a mention made of it. And then this is going to be a city. And this is very interesting to me that when the world comes up against Jerusalem, the Lord comes, there's going to be a conversion at that time of quite a few nations. And have you ever noticed the nations that are mentioned there? And it says here in verse 4, I will make mention of Rahab. Babylon, to them that know me, behold, Philistia and Tyre, with Ethiopia. This man was born there. The Ethiopian was born there. This is all very interesting, because when the gospel started down the highways of this world, when it left Jerusalem, the first convert that is given to us is the Ethiopian eunuch. This man was born there, born again. But this has reference to that future day. And I believe the entire nation of Ethiopia will be converted at that time. Verse 5, And of Zion it shall be said, This and that man were born in her. There'll be other nations there. And the highest himself shall establish her. That'll be the capital of this earth. The Lord shall count when he writeth up the people that this man was born there. There'll be quite a few that'll turn to the Lord in that day. They'll recognize they were deceived by Antichrist. Now, in Psalm 88, we come to, I suppose, the most doleful psalm that there is. It's all gloom here. The last one was all glory. But this one is all gloom. It's all gloom and no glory. O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before thee. What a picture that we have here. And there's nothing 
quite as doleful of this. But he is the God of my salvation, and he's holding on to that. It's been a psalm that's been applied to Job and Isaiah, who had the leprosy, and Jeremiah when he was in the dungeon, and Hezekiah when he was sick. And all of that is, of course, mere speculation. You have here the description of a great sufferer. Yet in all the suffering and affliction, he maintains his confidence in God as the God of his salvation. That's the great key to this psalm here. Verse 15 says, I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer thy terrors, I am distracted. You see, this man is in a tough, hard place. I've suffered. And the question is why? Wrath and death, the grave and darkness are here summed up together by the sufferer. Well, the psalm ends with an energetic expression of its main thought. And what is that? Well, the darkness is thickest at the end, just as in the morning before the rising of the sun. Hengstenberg made that statement. Now let's look at this 89th psalm here. It's a remarkable psalm, and that is the last psalm in the Leviticus section of the book of Psalms. The New Schofield Bible calls it the psalm of the Davidic covenant, and I like that. That is actually what it's all about. Now you have here this great psalm that is by Ethan the Ezraite. It's a masculine psalm, which means it's instruction, and it's by apparently one of the singers. I can't exactly locate this Ethan. There were several of them. He apparently was a singer, and he belonged to the tribe of Levi, and this is his. And I think it's interesting that we can't identify the man for the simple reason that the thing that actually is exalted here is the fact of the faithfulness of God. Now, if you go through this psalm, you will find out, as we'll note, that the faithfulness of God is mentioned ten times. So that's important. And you're going to find the word covenant mentioned four times, and with it God says, I have sworn... That's three times, and then I will not lie is mentioned also four times. So that what we have here is something I think that's quite wonderful in this psalm. So now let's come to the psalm itself. And it is quite a contrast to the last psalm, which was all gloom and no glory. And this one is all glory and no gloom. It's a psalm of great excitement, and it rests upon the covenant that God made with David. Now, when we were going through Second Samuel, I paused, I think, for an entire period on the seventh chapter. That's God's covenant with David. And if you want to know how important it was, you'll find it referred to again and again by the prophets, and here is a psalm that is to it, by the way. Now shall we read. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. 
And my friend, may I say to you that if God's good to you, and I'm sure he is, he's good to me, it's because of his mercies. And because of that, I'll sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Now, I can't sing, but I'm going to say it the best way I know how. The mercies of the Lord are wonderful. Now, he says, with my mouth, I will make known thy faithfulness to all generations. Now, I'm glad that he didn't say sing this time, because that would leave me out. But he says, with your mouth. And I can use my mouth, by the way. I've been using it for a long time. And he says, with my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. So I'd like to do that. I'd like to make known his faithfulness. He's been faithful to me, and I'm sure he has to you. And you notice here, the pronoun is thy faithfulness. Therefore, this is a praise to God because of his faithfulness, which was to David, of course. Then you'll find out when you get down to verse 24, it says, "...but my faithfulness and my mercy..." And who is it talking now? It's God that's speaking, you see. So all the references here, regardless of the pronoun, is a reference to the faithfulness of God. And this is a masculine psalm. It's a psalm of instruction, and you have the praise to God, and then you have what God has to say. Now will you notice verse 2, "...for I have said, Mercy shall be built up forever, thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the heaven." Now, God is faithful, and our salvation today rests upon the death of Christ and the faithfulness of God in saving those that will trust him. That is the important thing for us to note, that it's what God says that's important. It's like that little Scottish lady that I've told you about, that little Scot. She sent her boy away to school, and he came back a skeptic. And at the breakfast table of a morning, she was telling how wonderful God was and his faithfulness and how he'd saved her, and she could be sure of it. And then that son couldn't stand it any longer, and he blurted out and said, "'Your little soul doesn't amount to anything. It's very small compared to this great universe. God could forget you, and he wouldn't even miss you.'" And on and on he went. And so this Scotch mother kept quiet for a while. She didn't have anything to say. So she finished serving him breakfast. She sat down to eat. She said, son, I've been thinking about it. Maybe you are right. It may be my soul doesn't amount to anything. But if I lose my soul, God's going to lose more than I lose. And he says, what do you mean by that? She said, if I lose my soul, you've just said it doesn't amount to much. So I wouldn't lose much. But God's going to lose a great deal. He will lose his word, his reputation, he said he would do it. And may I say to you, friends, God would lose his reputation if he didn't make his covenant good to David. But you see, God is faithful. We can today say it if we can't sing it. The psalmist says, For I have said, Mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. 
Now, God says, I made a covenant with him. Now, I'm going to just lift that out now as I move down in the psalm at verse 5, "...and the heavens shall praise thy wonders." Now, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. But the faithfulness of God has more glory connected to it than that. O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints." And that deserves our praise today, that our God is faithful. And he's still talking about the faithfulness of God, because in verse 8 he says, "...O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong God like unto thee, art of thy faithfulness round about thee." And don't you get the impression now he's talking about the faithfulness of God. In verse 20, he says, "...I have found David my servant with my holy oil have I anointed him." Now, God at that time promised him something, and God says, I'll make it good. God now rests upon what he's promised David. Listen, verse 24, "...but my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted." Horn speaks of his strength. We have another very wonderful expression that is used here. And that's in verse 27. Also, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. Now, what was the covenant of David? He's sending one in his line that's coming. That covenant centers now in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's called here, also, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. Will you look at this? This is wonderful. When God sent the Lord Jesus, into this world. He came in as the only begotten Son. And by his incarnation, yonder at Bethlehem, he became the Son of God. Now, he was revealed in his life of humiliation. God manifested in the flesh. And after he died a sacrificial death, and that's the reason he came from heaven, he became in resurrection the firstborn, the first begotten from the dead. And it's the resurrected Christ. Listen, also I'll make him my firstborn here, the resurrected Christ, the one who came back from the dead after he died on the cross. And it just simply means that the scepter of this universe is in nail-pierced hands. But we are told here that he's higher than the kings of the earth. You know what that means? That means he's Lord of Lord and King of kings, friend. We're talking now about the Lord Jesus. And therefore, again, he says, "...my mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him." Now, suppose that his children forsake God. What will he do? Verse 30, "...if his children forsake my law, walk not in mine ordinances, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes." Then I guess God's through with them. No. Verse 33, "...nevertheless my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him." Listen to this. Now, allow my faithfulness to fail. 
Oh, my friend, I may be faithless, but my God is faithful. How wonderful this is. Now he takes an oath about the covenant that he made with David. Listen to him. Verse 35. He says, well, let me read 34. My covenant will I not break, nor will I alter the thing that's gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. And there's one sitting right at this moment at God's right hand who's coming to sit on that throne. He's the son of David. Listen to him. Verse 37, "...it shall be established forever like the moon, and as a faithful witness in heaven, Selah." And that moon looks like it's going to be up there for a pretty good while. David will have a son set on his throne of this universe. And God will make good his covenant with David. Now, verse 49, "...Lord, where are thy former loving kindness, which thou didst swear unto David in thy truth?" And so these people who'd gotten away from God at this time, it looked like that God had forgotten his covenant, but he hadn't forgotten his covenant. God's faithful. And God has a man to sit on David's throne. 